You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and joining me today is Jim Beheim, head coach of the Syracuse University men's basketball team for the last 37 years. He has 948 career victories and has led the Orange to five Big East regular season championships and five Big East tournament championships. He currently holds the most career wins for a coach at a single school and is a major fundraiser for Coaches Versus Cancer. He and his wife founded the Jim and Julie Bayheim Foundation for Child Welfare and Cancer Treatment. Bleeding Orange is his first book, and we're so happy he's joined us today. Welcome, Coach. Hey, great to be here. Thank you for a great book. It was so fun to relive so many great seasons and games, and it's, it's really tough to know where to begin when thinking of your career. But I'd like to start with the game that you call your most memorable, one that you describe as, quote, one big, illogical spectacle 70 minutes of dramatic basketball in the world's greatest arena. That would be the six-overtime game with UConn in 2009 at Madison Square Garden. I'm starting with this because I think it, it illustrates a lot of what you talk about in the book, starting with your years in the Big East and those rivalry with some of those great coaches, and in this case, Jim Calhoun. What was it about the Big East that was just so distinct and so special. Well, you know, it really became a coaches' league. Uh, uh, Dave Gavitt, of course, the great coach, started the Big East, and it just everything came together at once. Great players started to come into our schools, and great coaches. Uh, some already there with John Thompson, Lou Carnesecca, Roy Massimino, and then guys uh, like Jim Calhoun and Rick Patino and. Uh, so many guys came into the league, and it was just a, a fierce battle every night when you went out to play. There were nine teams, and everybody had good players, and you played everybody twice. It was an ideal basketball league to find the best teams, but it was uh, very difficult for the coaches. It was tough every night. You had no nights off. Even the weaker teams in the league were pretty good. One of the things that you say is you compare the biggies with the ACC, and you say the ACC is like a club, sort of more formal and official <coughs> and proper, and the Big East was more more like a fraternity with the spirit of brotherhood, even if occasionally you, you had a, a food fight. <laughs> we had a lot of those food fights. The one thing that is different is Madison Square Garden for the Big East tournament was a special place. People came every year. People came that didn't even go to the games. They just wanted to be near the garden. And if they got a ticket, they went. If yeah. they didn't, they just went to the bar and watched yeah, it, it with their friends. I being one of them. You couldn't, it got to the point where you couldn't afford the ticket, but yeah. it was so fun. The atmosphere was so fun. It was great. It was a great experience, and it's the one thing I'll miss in the ACC. The ACC is a great league, great teams, great coaches, um, great players. Now, another distinction in that UConn game was the fact that you, you kept two of your starters out of foul trouble, right? And a lot of I think a lot of people would say 
that's due to your very famous zone defense, <laughs> right, which leads to fewer fouls. So do you want to talk about your zone? Because yeah. you, also, you also make a comment in the book that I, I imagine people are going to seize on, which is that if you were starting again, if you were a younger coach, you might choose to go man-to-man. Uh, -man. Yeah, you know, we started out that way. We were man-to-man -man in the beginning, some zone, but mostly man-to-man. The zone has kind of evolved over the years, and it's now become so strong for us. It's really hard to go back to man-to-man because -man our zone has become so sophisticated and we spend so much time on it. It'd be very hard to go back. But uh, I think generally you can keep players out of foul trouble a little bit. But when you play six overtimes, I mean, you're going to lose guys. Because we lost uh, three starters. They lost four starters. Okay. So we had an edge at the end. Yeah, yeah. And part of the reason was I was mad at one of our starters during the game, so I took him out for a while. So he happened to be in there at the end, and he scored a lot of the buckets at the end. So we had, that's <laughs> how that? we won. Paul Harris. Okay. He, we really had two starters left, and they had at the end they actually had none. And that's when we dominated the last overtime. Right. The unique thing about the six-overtime game is we were behind in all five overtimes. Right, we I remember. never yep. had the lead in any one of right. them. And that's why, to me, it was such – a great accomplishment to finally win that game at 1:20 in the morning. Wall Street guys are telling me the bus, you know, the last train is leaving to go to Jersey or something, and I'm like going, guys, you know, I can't be. I'm not worried about the last train. Now you also say that after the game, you, you sort of ran back onto the court and and yelled to no one in particular. <laughs> okay, so are we still on the bubble now? <laughs> It was to Jay Billis and Bill oh, okay. Raftery. Uh, was, for he, sure. was, he, was he commentating? Yeah, or, they yeah. had the game that night. Yeah, yeah they laughed. It was. <laughs> so now I'm, I'm interested in your, your opinion of creativity in coaching. Do you, do you think that creativity exists or, or not? And if oh. so, how? Oh, it's huge. I mean, okay. coaches do all kinds of creative things. And, not just X's and O's. I mean, there's some obviously some X's and O's, but psychological things with their teams, team bonding type things that coaches I don't, I don't do. See you as a team bonder kind of guy. Well, I'm guy. not. I got to <laughs> yeah. be honest. I'm not really a team bonder, but we do some things. We used to play a softball game together. We used to do some of that, not as much anymore. But I, I think there is. Certainly some of that that goes on. I mean, you you have to remember as a coach, you're coaching very young people who are learning a lot of different things on the court and off the court all at the same time. And you've got to be creative in the way you put them together and yeah. how you talk to them yeah. and how you get them to do what is necessary uh, for your team. Now, speaking of talking, I've heard Coach K say that he thinks it's imperative that players talk on the court. Right. Are there are there things like that that you tell your kids during a game, this is critical? He is really more of that than I am. Uh, part of it is in man-to-man -man defense, you're in uh, more situations yeah. where you're crossing paths and you have to talk. Zone, your role is defensively is a little more defined. You really don't have to talk as much. So I, I've had a lot of guys that don't talk a lot, and I'm okay with that. Duke's system requires players to okay. talk more. It's, it's a different system. Now, 
So the way you're describing zone, it, 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 it sounds like it could benefit from the saber metrics kind of stuff, like the, the analysis of what, you know, almost geographical patterns. Have I, you thought about that? Like, has that... I do saber metrics without doing it, without putting it yeah, on paper. Yeah, just in your brain, huh? I just look at it. And yeah. I, I can see what works and what doesn't work. I don't have to go back and see the stat sheet. At the end of the game, we haven't turned it over. I don't have to look at it. I, I kind of know that as the game goes along. I don't have to, oh, we only turned over five times. That's why we won. Well, yeah, but you still got to do it. In other yeah, words, yeah. it's easy to say, well, we're going to keep our turnovers down. We're going to shoot a high percentage. And, you know, see, anybody can say that. Yeah. I remember playing golf once, and the caddy said, Coach, if you hit it down the middle and you hit it pretty long and you hit it on the right side of the green, it'll go toward the hole, and you'll have an easy putt. And I told him. If I could do those things, I'd be playing for pay out here. I can't do that. There was one team, I, I can't remember which it was, that seemed to make a point to adapt the sabermetrics more than others. I can't remember who it was. But I'm, I'll be interested to see when that starts to, to I think it's down. much more of a baseball thing yeah. than, than a basketball thing. Yeah. Not that it couldn't apply. But basketball is a more instinctual game. It's, okay. a, it's a little different. And it's just more fluid, perhaps, that, yes. that, that wouldn't benefit. I also read that... The way that you manage a game is you try to let the players control the game as much as they can until roughly about the six-minute mark. Do I have that right? And then you tend to get more involved? It, and it depends on your team. If I have a very young team, I may be involved right from the beginning. I may be calling plays. And If you have more veterans, uh, you know, you may allow them to, to do more of that. Um, certainly in the last few minutes of a game, that's when you have to give them the direction that you, you've watched the game. You've tried to figure out what's the best way to finish the game, and uh, and sometimes that changes. But you try to have figured that out, and you try to take control of the game with the plays you call on offense and what you do with your defense if you're going to change it at all. And is that a lot of what happens in practice? Do you say, okay, the clock is at this point, and we're down this many points? You can do that. We don't do that a lot. Because you get into those situations, and I mean, if you're having a good practice, you're practicing, you're executing plays to be successful. Uh, so if you're executing plays that are successful yeah. in the first five minutes or the yeah, next five okay. minutes, or like, I think the real the key to game coaching is to have a feel for what is going to work at the end, and it may not be something that worked during the game, maybe something different, and you may have saved something that you may think could work in that situation and surprise the other team. Really, game coaching is an art. I mean, you've seen these things for 40 years, and you try to figure out what that adjustment's going to be that's going to win the game. And and even if you have done all that and know all that and you you know player doesn't execute, you're going to lose. Yeah. So yeah. it's still in the hands of the players at the end, but you can help them. Right. Now, you, you say in the book that college basketball is a game of constant loss and replenishment. And I wonder what your opinion is on so many players coming in for only one year, these mm. one and done. Do you think that that's changed the game overall? Well, or do you think it's specific to those teams? or The game is not as good as it used to be, but it's still played at a good level. But you're not going to have great teams because you're not going to have juniors and seniors that are great players great players are going to be gone. So you're going to have great players that are freshmen, and they'll still be good players, and you'll have good teams. 
but you're not going to have the great teams that you used to have because the great players are gone after a year or two. And do you miss that? I would like to see that. I don't really spend too much time thinking about something that is not going to happen. It's just the way it is. You have to adjust to it. Now, your suggestion is that there be a requirement that kids stay for two years. You've also suggested the combine. Yeah, I think if we had a better combine before players were had to go, then they could go and get a good evaluation from NBA people, and, and some of the NBA people would tell them, you know, you yeah, need to stay wait. in school, yeah. and it would help kids. Um, and, and, and then the other thing would be the, the two-year, I mean, it, it, it would be better for college. It would be better for the NBA, and I think it would be better for almost all kids to stay two right. years. I think that's possible. Um, I don't see three years or yeah. something like that. Now, what's your opinion of uh, on paying the kids? You know, if you're at Syracuse, you get $60,000 scholarship. Yep. We need to give them cost of attendance, which would be another 4000 If you're a need-based student, you get $7,000 in Pell Grant money. So if you got seven and four is $11,000 and a $60,000 education, that's pretty good. You also, we should get health benefits better. We should get the parents to come to games we should get the kid a trip home and back at Christmas. That, those could all yeah. be add-ons that would be good. I don't think you can pay players. I mean, pay one of your players X amount and the right, other one half that. One, yeah. I don't think that. And I think it would be hard to regulate that and fix that. But And the other thing, the great player that's really driving us to make money at Syracuse He's going to go on and make money. He's going to get yeah. his, He's going to use college to get his platform to get in the NBA, and he's going to make a lot of money. The pretty good player is still going to play in Europe or someplace, and I have players playing in Europe making three or four hundred thousand dollars. So they'll get it. The players that are like me that weren't good enough to play anywhere else got a free education and a great experience. So I think we have a good system. I don't know what's going to happen with all these and lawsuits. lawsuits yeah. and if players got a portion of the TV money, I mean, I don't know where we'd go there. Right. It'd, it'd be, it seems hard to be interesting. To sort out. I know one thing, that the lawyers would get 25 to 50% of the money. That is true. <laughs> that is true. So, Coach, what's your opinion of YouTube? I have no opinion on YouTube. Really? You have no have, opinion on YouTube? I don't have a computer. Is that where YouTube is? That's definitely where it is. And you, there's nothing that you'd like to add to your uh, sport coat shuffle coverage? No, com <laughs> no comment there? They showed me the pictures, and they were cute. I like that. It was a good moment. It, it was a, one of those once-in-a-lifetime things, and I think people accepted it. Is kind of a funny thing. I was surprised that it was your first um, First objection. time I've yeah. been thrown out of a game. Yeah. Yeah. And I tried yeah, to research, maybe you know it, maybe you don't care, but I tried to understand who's been thrown out the most. And I don't know who that is, do you? It, it's, it's rare in college. It is. In our it? league, yeah. at one time, it was Jim Calhoun. I think the same referee threw him out three times. Is so that right? I think he was probably thrown out four or five. But okay. it's unusual. Coaches, you know, we don't want to get thrown out. Yeah. I mean, it, the game was over. They were going to win. Yeah. It was if there was ten minutes to go, I never would have gotten thrown out of that game. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I also listened to. I, I guess it was a couple of days later when you and Coach K were on the radio together, mm -hmm. and you were talking about yeah. his reaction. And it, I mean, it. He was good. He was really good. He could have been mad. I detracted from the ending a little bit, but he was fine. He, he we're good friends, obviously. Yeah. But no, he was fine with it. 
Well, you you certainly established you know a level of drama that we can all look forward to with you know with your years in the in the ACC because that's going to be those are going to be some fun well, games. Well, they'll never forget what happened in, in, in Durham, North Carolina, twenty years from now. No, they'll be, they will never forget. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the fact that you've written this book. Why did you decide now was the best time to write a book? You know, I wanted to write an honest book, and I didn't want to have 20 years more of coaching to go, and I wanted to write it once. I think that we've covered 99, 95% of what I've done and have, will do, probably. So it was a good time. Uh, Jack McCallum's a good friend of mine. He's one of the best sports writer in America, I Absolutely. think. And it was easy and fun to do the book. I know a lot of people think books are hard to do, and they are, but this was easy and fun. So how did you guys do it? It was interesting because it was going to be originally a history of the program, but it turned into a history of the Big East, leaving the Big East, entering the ACC. We were in our first year, so he covered all the key games, and we start out with 25 wins. So yeah, it was a great season. It made that yeah. part of the book interesting. If we'd have been 15 and 10, it wouldn't have been much of a story, uh, and it wouldn't have been as big a part of the book. But because those things happened... And he really did a masterful job of helping me weave it into yes. history and present time. Yeah. And that's what I liked about the book. You got the old, you got the anecdotes, you got so many great things from the Big East, yeah. but you got new things and a new entrance into the ACC. ACC. Yeah, I learned a lot about the Biggies, and it was really fun, and it was it was all really interesting stuff. So I think you guys were very successful in that structure, and and then in addition to him following you, did you actually write a lot, or how did you? I had on tried that? to use the tape and had some oh, right, stuff right, right, tape, yeah. but we basically sat together, just sat down yep. and grinded out chapter after chapter. And yeah. And he really, the thing that we want, he did, and I don't think anybody could do, everybody feels like they're exactly my words, as I would say them. It, it really does, yeah. And it reads exactly that n- way. It doesn't read like somebody wrote this book. No, absolutely not. And he obviously wrote a lot of it. I'm not, I'm much better, better verbally than I am writing. My writing skills are not at a high level. So I needed that, but he did it in my voice, which is important. Absolutely talking about books, I'm going to talk to you as a yes. writer, Yes. and I'm going to ask you, what was the last book that you discussed with a friend, and what did you guys talk about? You know, I read a lot of the, uh, very similar books. Um, a lot, it's pretty much escapist reading, but, uh, you know, the Jake Reacher series, uh-huh. I, I read all the books there. It was a crime to have Tom Cruise play Jake Reacher yeah, in like the that, movie. Huh? Six six two hundred and fifty pound guy is being played by a five eight hundred nothing pound guy. That was the only bad part of that. But I love that series. I, I like to read about detectives solving things. Uh, Patterson's James Patterson's books. I, I love David Silva. All right. Now, what would be your your desert island book? You can only take one or two. Well, you know it's funny, but I started a long time ago with historical Michener. Mm-hmm. His books, oh, and uh, I, I love those books. The Taipan, uh, uh, China books. Mm-hmm. Uh, for some reason, I, I was a history major, and I started with those books, and I really like those books. But 
If I, I mean, this is a cheap one, but I still like uh, Larry McMurtry and Lonesome Dove That's as much as anything. I mean, I cried when I read the book. It's and a then, beautiful book. And yeah. they did it into a great TV series, I thought. I mean, I just thought it was well done. And we got Robert Duvall and, you know, the people that were in the movie. Like and I it. never remember the name, but I love. I think it was the author's first book, and it was about the shortstop in college. And oh, was, yeah, that was The Art of Fielding. Oh, great. Are you a baseball fan? I like baseball. Yeah, I like baseball. Um, I don't read sports books, per yeah. se. I never have. I, I'm a fiction, mystery, murder kind of, yeah. of guy, and some historical stuff as well, but... Yeah, I'm I'm a fan of all sports. I watch everything. Do you lacrosse? I mean, I I watch the ping pong when it's on. You yeah. know, it's just badminton. I'll watch that. I'm, Anything with I'm, a score, huh? I'm a sports. I'm a You're sports, a sports guy. That's it. That's it. Well, thank you for writing such a fun book for all of us to thank enjoy. You. It really was terrific. Thank you so much, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Harper Audio Presents is edited by Sharon Matlin, with production help from Jennifer Monroe. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and the books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.